The MapReduce paper was published by Google in 2004. MapReduce is an algorithm that describes how to do large-scale data processing on large clusters of commodity hardware. The MapReduce paper marked the beginning of the big data movement. The Hadoop project was an open-source implementation of the MapReduce paper. Doug Cutting and Mike Caffarella wrote software that allowed anybody to use MapReduce as long as they had significant server operations knowledge and a rack of commodity servers. Hadoop got deployed first at companies with the internal engineering teams that could recognize its importance and implement it, companies like Yahoo and Microsoft. The word quickly spread about the leverage Hadoop could provide. Around this time, every large company was waking up to the fact that it had tons of data and didn't know how to take advantage of it. Billion-dollar corporations in areas like banking, insurance, manufacturing, and agriculture all wanted to take advantage of this amazing new way of looking at their data. But these companies did not have the engineering expertise to deploy Hadoop clusters. Three big companies were formed to help bring Hadoop to large enterprises, Cloudera, Hortonworks, and MapR. Each of these companies worked with hundreds of large enterprise clients to build out their Hadoop clusters and help them access their data. Tomer Shiran spent five years at MapR, seeing the data problems of these large enterprises and observing how much value could be created by solving these data problems. In 2015, 11 years had passed since MapReduce was first published, and companies were still having data problems. Tomer started working on Dremio, a company that was in stealth for another two years. I interviewed Tomer two years ago, and when he still could not say much about what Dremio was doing, we talked about Apache Drill, which was an open-source project related to what Dremio eventually built. I should say it is an open-source project. Earlier this year, two of Tomer's colleagues, Jacques Nadeau and Julian Ledem, came on to discuss columnar data storage and interoperability. And what I took away from that conversation was that today, data within an average enterprise is accessible, but the different formats are a problem. Some data is in MySQL, some is in Amazon S3, some is in Elasticsearch, some is in HDFS stored in Parquet files. And also different teams will set up different BI tools and different charts that read from a specific silo of data. At the lowest level, the different data formats are incompatible. You have to transform MySQL data in order to merge it with S3 data. On top of that, engineers doing data science work are using Spark and Pandas and other tools that pull lots of data into memory. And if the in-memory data formats are not compatible, then the data teams can't get the most out of their work. They can't share their data sets with each other. On top of that, at the highest level, these data analysts that are working with the different data analysis tools creates even more siloing. Now I understand why Dremio took two years to bring to market. Dremio is trying to solve data interoperability by making it easy to transform data sets between different formats. They're trying to solve data access speed by creating a sophisticated caching system. And they're trying to improve the effectiveness of the data analysts by providing the right abstractions for someone who is not a software engineer to study the different data sets across an organization. Dremio is an exciting project because it's rare to see a pure software company put so many years into upfront stealth product development. After talking to Tomer in this conversation, I'm looking forward to seeing Dremio come to market. It was fascinating to hear him talk about how data engineering has evolved to today. And some of the best episodes of Software Engineering Daily cover the history of data engineering, including an interview that we did with Mike Caffarella, who was the co-founder of Hadoop. We also did another episode called The History of Hadoop, in which we explored how Hadoop made it from a Google research paper into a multi-billion dollar, multi-company industry. And you can find all these old episodes if you download the Software Engineering Daily app for iOS and for Android. With these apps, we're building a new way to consume content about software engineering. And they're also open sourced at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. If you're looking to get involved in our community and contribute to the open source projects, we would love to get your help. With that, let's get on to this episode. You are programming a new service for your users or you are hacking on a side project. 
Whatever you're building, you need to send email. And for sending email, developers use SendGrid. SendGrid is the API for email, trusted by developers. Send transactional emails through the SendGrid API. Build marketing campaigns with a beautiful interface for crafting the perfect email. SendGrid is trusted by Uber, Airbnb, and Spotify. But anyone can start for free and send 40,000 emails in their first month. After the first month, you can send 100 emails per day for free. Just go to sendgrid.com slash sedaily to get started. Your email is important. Make sure it gets delivered properly with SendGrid, a leading email platform. Get started with 40,000 emails your first month at sendgrid.com slash sedaily. That's sendgrid.com slash sedaily. Tomer Sharan is the CEO of Dremio. Tomer, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Oh, thanks for having me. The last time we spoke, we were talking about Apache Drill. And in another episode, I talked to your colleague, the CTO of Dremio, who is Jacques Nadeau, and we talked about columnar data in that episode. And in both of these episodes, I knew that the two of you were working on this stealth company, Dremio. I didn't know much about what you were building, now that the product is out, I want to take a top-down approach, and we'll discuss what Dremio is, and then we'll discuss the technical topics that we discussed in the past two episodes, and sort of how they relate to the construction of this product. Um, to start off, it's 2017, and we've got teams of data scientists, data engineers, data analysts, these data teams that are also working with software engineers. They've got tons of data, and they have some problems managing and accessing and visualizing that data. What are some of the specific problems faced by these teams of data engineers and data scientists and software engineers? Yeah, so you know, if you think about our, uh, our personal lives and how easy it is when we go home and we have a question and we go online and ask ask that question on Google and you know one or two seconds later we have an answer right and you know we have this amazing experience with data in our personal lives and, and that extends to you know smart uh, smartphones and we want to book travel and within within two minutes we book travel and it's very simple but then we come to work and it often takes us months to be able to answer a new question or create a new visualization, especially when you get uh, to the enterprise where data is distributed all over the place and kind of owned by different teams. And a lot of work has to happen in order to make that data uh, available for somebody to be able to ask questions to it uh, on, on that uh, on that data. So that's, that's kind of the core problem. And a lot of times you'll see companies go through um, lots of kind of ETL work where they're extracting and transforming data and they have to figure out some kind of data warehouse where they can load that data into and, and make it available. And it's just a lot of, a lot of work and that takes uh, months to do. Um, and so that's, that's a big challenge. Some of this data is sitting in Amazon S3. Some of it's sitting in Elasticsearch. Some of it is sitting in Mongo. Is the data in all of these different places, is it in the right format to be queried by these data teams? It, it may or may not be. Um, you know, I think the world has moved to a place where uh, we have lots of different types of data stores. And, you know, each of these data stores is really optimized for building different types of applications. And so developers that build an app on uh, uh, you know, web app may choose Mongo because that's easier to build the app there or for some other use cases, Elasticsearch and, you know, maybe put the log files on S3. Um, really, they're kind of optimizing for what's the best place for me to put the data for the application that I'm trying to build as opposed to for the type of analysis that I'm that somebody may later want to do with that data. And so that's uh, uh, that's a challenge, right? If you think of the the old world, maybe it was possible to have all my data in one relational database and I could just as easily query that data and do my analysis directly on that, let's say, Oracle database. Uh, but that's obviously no longer the world, right? With with today's uh, kind of volume and variety and complexity of data, it's just way beyond uh, a place where we can just have all, all our data somehow magically in, in a relational one relational database and expose that to a bunch of BI tools. It, it just doesn't, that's just not feasible anymore. 
do we want to uniformly turn these data sets into a single access system with consistent latency, uh, consistent formatting? I mean, one thing we could talk about is columnar data. I think we will talk about that. Is the goal of Dremio to uniformly turn these data sets into columnar data? It's actually, I, I would I would describe the goal really as a, a self-service data. We uh, Our goal at Dremio really is, if you think of this this new world where the data no longer can realistically be in, in one place, in one relational database, um, and at the same time you have this growing demand for kind of self-service access to the data from you know, everybody from the data scientist to the, you know, the product manager and the business analyst and so forth, you know, how do we, how do we create a, a, a way for, uh, for these people to be self-sufficient, to be empowered, to do whatever they want with the data, no matter where that data is, how big it is, um, what structure it's in. And so uh, to do that, we have to solve a variety of different uh, problems that, uh, you know, the traditional data infrastructure just doesn't deal with, right? If, if you think about uh, historically, uh, you know, we've had data in different places, we would then have to ETL that data into maybe some kind of staging area like a, like a data lake or a, you know, Hadoop cluster or something like S3. And then, you know, querying directly on that kind of system is, is more often than not too slow. So companies will tend to ETL a subset of that data, maybe the last 30 days or the last, uh, or some aggregate level data into a data warehouse, and that's not fast enough. So they create cubes and they pre-aggregate into other tables in the data warehouse, and maybe they extract into the BI servers. And at the end of all that, you have ten different copies of the data, and really a lot of manual work that has to be done by uh, engineers every time somebody has a question or wants to do something new. And so we think that in order to achieve this world where companies really want to. Uh, leverage data, they want to be data-driven, you have to create a system that empowers the end user, the the data consumer, whether they're a data scientist who's using Pandas or a business analyst using Tableau, how do you empower that user to do everything on their own and get the performance that, you know, that they need, which is often sub-second response time, even when the data, when the, the data sets are, you know, even petabytes in size. All right. I think we understand this from the high-level product perspective what are the features that you need to build in order to make that data access easier? Are we talking about a visualization product? Are we talking about a query language? Are we talking about some sort of dashboard with both of those things built into it? Are we talking about an API? What are the features that you need? Mm-hmm. So what what uh, what Dremio provides, and, and by the way, Dremio is, uh, is available as an open source project as well as kind of an enterprise edition, um, and so you can download it. And you know, there are, there are basically two, two aspects to it. So on one hand, if you think about most companies, there are different users that want to use different tools to, to explore and analyze the data, uh, ranging from, you know, BI to Excel to more advanced things like R and Python. And so uh, we don't want to create a visualization tool or something that, you know, people use to analyze the data. They already have plenty of those, those tools. But we do want to provide these data consumers the ability to access and analyze any data at any time. And so we we provide a number of capabilities in, in that regard, and that includes kind of a, an, an integrated data catalog where they can find the data that they want and, and kind of use a search-type interface for that. And we provide them with a, with a visual interface that they can curate the data and create new virtual data sets and collaborate with their colleagues. And at the end of the day, we want to enable their existing tools, whether that's Tableau or Power BI or, you know, ClickSense or... R or Python to be able to connect to the, the system and, and run the query and get a response in less than a second, no matter how big the data is or where it's coming from. And when it comes to, uh, so so for, for the data consumer, we want them to live in a logical world where they feel that they can do anything with the data at any time. Now, at the same time, we have to provide the execution and acceleration capabilities uh, that will actually make that fast. And so that's where underneath the hood, there's an entire kind of SQL distributed execution engine, leveraging Apache Arrow. Um, there's an acceleration layer where we've pioneered something called data reflections, which uh, can accelerate queries by orders of magnitude. And then there's kind of this data virtualization layer that knows how to talk to different databases and push down queries uh, or parts of queries into these underlying databases, whether there are no SQL databases like Elasticsearch and MongoDB, or it's relational databases like Oracle and SQL Server and MySQL. 
You talked about a few of the technical concepts there, the reflection concept and the virtual data set concept. What's the right order that we should approach these concepts to dive into them? Right. So if you think about what the, let's say the business analyst who's using the system or the data scientist who's, who's a user and they want to work with the data, they're never aware of reflections. So I think we should first focus on kind of from their experience, they're dealing with data sets. And so you have the the physical data sets, those are the things that are in the collections in MongoDB and the indexes in Elastic and the tables in Oracle and the Hive tables in Hadoop. Those are physical data sets. And then we allow these, user to, these users to create their own virtual data sets, basically views of the data, and they can share them with their colleagues and build on top of each other and, and so forth. And so users always think about the world in, in terms of data sets and in, in both, both physical and virtual data sets. DigitalOcean Spaces gives you simple object storage with a beautiful user interface. You need an easy way to host objects like images and videos. Your users need to upload objects like PDFs and music files. DigitalOcean built Spaces because every application uses object storage. Spaces simplifies object storage with automatic scalability, reliability, and low cost. But the user interface takes it over the top. I've built a lot of web applications, and I always use some kind of object storage. The other object storage dashboards that I've used are confusing, they're painful, and they feel like they were built 10 years ago. DigitalOcean Spaces is modern object storage with a modern UI that you will love to use. It's like the UI for Dropbox, but with the pricing of a raw object storage. I almost want to use it like a consumer product. To try DigitalOcean Spaces, go to do.co slash sedaily and get two months of Spaces plus a $10 credit to use on any other DigitalOcean products. You get this credit even if you have been with DigitalOcean for a while. You can spend it on Spaces or you can spend it on anything else in DigitalOcean. And it's a nice added bonus just for trying out Spaces. The pricing is simple. $5 per month, which includes 250 gigabytes of storage, and one terabyte of outbound bandwidth. There are no costs per request, and additional storage is priced at the lowest rate available, just a cent per gigabyte transferred and two cents per gigabyte stored. There won't be any surprises on your bill. DigitalOcean simplifies the cloud. They look for every opportunity to remove friction from a developer's experience. I'm already using DigitalOcean Spaces to host music and video files for a product that I'm building, and I love it. I think you will too. Check it out at do.co slash sedaily and get that free $10 credit in addition to two months of spaces for free. That's do.co slash sedaily. So the virtual data sets are these in-memory representations of the uh, data sets, the, the physical data sets that are probably represented on disk? Yeah, the physical data sets are represented uh, typically on disk in, in some source system. The virtual data set really is, is uh, it's not an in-memory representation, it's just a logical definition, right? And that's the, the beauty of this is that you can then have uh, a thousand users creating these virtual data sets. There's virtually no cost to these, uh, to these things and they can, uh, they can create as many as they want. And at the end of the day, that's important because uh, kind of in the old world, what happens is that every user wants to get the data into you know their own exact shape and form that, that they like before they do their analysis. And that indeed involves downloading the data um, you know into a CSV file or a spreadsheet or kind of creating a, a copy of data. Whereas in Dremio, uh, that's not required. Every user can create the data, uh, kind of massage the data, get it into uh, some other form, and save that as a virtual data set with literally zero uh, overhead in the system. We're not materializing those those virtual data sets. I see. So they're essentially saving their queries, and the, the query, when they decide to run it, becomes a materialized view. But until then, it's just a query, which in a sense is a virtual data set. Right. These virtual data sets are essentially defined by a select statement in SQL. And of course, you can you can define virtual data sets that are built on top of other virtual data sets. 
So as an example, you may have a virtual data set that is a join between a hive table and an elastic index, and then another virtual data set that maybe selects only the records from that first virtual data set and filters them on you know, the city equals uh, Mountain View. Um, so you can have that kind of uh, basically data graph uh, evolve over time of these virtual data sets defined based on other virtual data sets. Um, and what's nice is that these virtual data sets are exposed when a BI tool such as Tableau, for example, connects to Dremio. All these data sets, whether they're physical or virtual, are exposed to Tableau as tables that the Tableau user can then you know, play with. They can start analyzing and they can start you know, visualizing, creating charts and dashboards and, and stories and, and so forth. It sounds like these virtual data sets are kind of like stored procedures, but when we change the way that we're referring to that abstraction, then you, you can start to build a different product around that. I mean, you, you start to build a product with the idea that this is a virtual data set, it's not a query, uh, and, and it, you know, uh, I guess it becomes easier for people to think about merging virtual data sets together rather than uh, running queries on top of one another. Or, or maybe you could help me understand the, the, the difference in terminology, because it sounds like a virtual data set is kind of just like a stored procedure. It's actually similar to a, a view in a database. So if if if, uh, if we were talking about one relational database, um, then there are views in that system. Now, views are typically defined by, you know, like a DBA or somebody who's t pretty technical. Um, in the case of Dremio, these virtual data sets um, can be defined either through a SQL uh, statement, a select statement, or by, by interacting visually with the data. So there's a, a user interface that's similar to Excel and allows them to... You know, click on a column and say, I want to drop this column and select the zip code in, in an address column and say, click on extract and, and we figure out how to extract that into a new column. And but all that's doing underneath the hood is, is kind of modifying that SQL definition of that data set. So effectively, you're creating views of the data. These, these are these virtual data sets. What's a Dremio reflection? So we've talked about kind of the, the notion of virtual data sets, and that's that's what users see in the product. That's what they interact with. That's what they, you know, they share with their colleagues. That's what they analyze when they connect a BI tool or something like R or Python to, to Dremio. They, they play with these virtual data sets. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, these users expect high performance, right? So uh, if something is really easy, um, but it's slow, people don't want to use it. And... When we looked at, okay, achieving the, the holy grail of analytics, um, a system basically that allows you to interact and analyze any data at any time, um, you know, part of the problem was solving kind of the logical aspect, make it easy for people to find things and, and, uh, and collaborate, create new data sets and so forth. But the other aspect is how do you do that fast, right? And there are a lot of challenges uh, in that regard uh, because oftentimes the... Um, you know, the data is in a system that just physically won't let you query it fast, right? If, if the data is in an Elasticsearch index and, um, and you're trying to join two indexes and that requires uh, scans of these indexes, well, if that system can only do 20,000 records per second per core, there's only, it's only so, so much speed that you can have when you're doing that kind of analysis. And so uh, really what users want is they want a response time of, of up to a few seconds uh, in most use cases, um, regardless of how big the data is. And, and that's where the reflections come into play. That's basically our kind of unique IP that we've developed to allow us to provide um, interactive speed queries regardless of the size of the data and the location where the data lives. And and so that's a lot of the magic of the system from a, from a performance standpoint. I want to ask a little bit about the proprietary sure. stuff. I know you, you probably can't tell me exactly what it's doing. My sense is that it's a complex caching system and it that does maybe some eager loading in certain situations something like that yeah i, I think that's that's uh, that's fair it is a it's a complex caching system now what we're caching is is not just the you know a, a typical a traditional cache is caching kind of a you know copies of the data right in our case uh, the reason these are called reflections is because we are caching different reflections or different perspectives of the data. So we may cache the data in different shapes and forms. For example, we may cache a given uh, data set um, pre-aggregated by various dimensions. We may cache it 
um, sorted in specific ways or partitioned in specific ways. And so these are what we call these these data reflections. Um, in the um, one of the hard parts here is when the when a query comes in, let's say from a BI tool like like Tableau or or, or Click or Power BI. Um, we then, our, our, our cost-based optimizer has to look at that query, compile it, and say, okay, how can I um, reduce the cost of executing this query by leveraging one or more reflections? So internally, we are rewriting that query plan, if it's possible, uh, to leverage the reflections rather than scanning the raw data in the source system again and again and again and again. And that's kind of how we get the, the performance. And so you could think of it as, you know, when you go on Google and you, and you run a search query, you know, it would be very slow if Google had to then go and scan all the world's web pages, right? That would be that would be slow. So instead, they have they've created an uh, an index and they've created various models where they have already organized the data internally in various shapes that allow them to retrieve answers to specific queries very very fast. And that's kind of what we do at uh, at Dremio, of course, with different types of data structures that are more suitable for for analytical queries. Um, and so you could think about. You know, in the old world, you had things like cubes and, and projections and indexes in, in relational databases and all those types of techniques. If you combine those into one system and you put it behind the scenes where the end user doesn't even need to know about it, but it's the system deciding which one of these representations or, or maybe multiple of them to use at query time, that's kind of how we get that performance. Let's talk about some of the, the the intelligence that goes into that reflection building. I don't know the way to approach this, but maybe I'm a data data analyst. I've got a MySQL database, an Elasticsearch cluster. I've got three or four other data sources. I build some virtual data sets. And if I was naively requesting those data sets at different points throughout the day, it would take forever to build those virtual data sets because... They're just large sets of data. It takes a while for to, for, to query them and mm-hmm. uh, pull them from disk into into memory. Uh, but with the Dremio, if I've got this Dremio reflection, it's going to intelligently have some of that information cached. It's going to make it accessible to me in my BI tool a little more aggressively. What are you doing that's intelligent that gets that data into something um gets gets things going faster like can you just give me some some guidance for what you're doing yeah so we uh so let's let's start with where does this where where do these reflections live so the reflections live um uh, they're they're they live in a persistent store and we have three options we can leverage s3 to to store these reflections we can leverage hdfs or a hadoop cluster any any kind of hadoop cluster uh, for these reflections and then we can also just leverage the local disks of a Dremio cluster and stripe them across that, and that's good for cases where you don't have you don't have a dupe and you don't have and you're not running in the cloud, um, and so you can do that as well. And so then that that's kind of where the reflections live, and we are maintaining them on kind of let's say an hourly basis or, or whatever your SLA is. So you can kind of define that on a per data source as well as a per data set level, um, and say, okay, I'm willing for this this data to be at most one hour still. And then our engine makes sure makes sure that we're maintaining that reflection on, on that schedule and updating it either by doing full updates or incremental updates um, to, to maintain these reflections. And then when your query comes in from the BI tool, the query says, you know what, I want to see all the, uh, just count the number of events based on city. So per aggregating by city. And you know, one of our reflections in the cache may be, the data already aggregated by uh, city, state, and neighborhood, well, we can kind of roll that up and give you the answer that you asked for by going through maybe a million records instead of going through a trillion records. And that, of course, gives you that uh, many orders of magnitude uh, faster response time. So you have this scheduled job that pulls data from the virtual data set into the Dremio reflection, and the Dremio reflection will give you a faster the Dremio reflection is the the kind of it's like the materialized view of a virtual data set, right? That, that's correct, and it's uh, at a, at a high level. So one of the one of the important nuances here is that the reflection doesn't have to. I mean, a single reflection could actually accelerate queries on many different virtual data sets because. Uh, as you may recall, these virtual data sets could be very much related to each other. They could be derived from one another. And so at the end of the day, when a 
when a when a SQL query comes into the into the system, our optimizer doesn't really care about the virtual data set. It kind of expands all those definitions and looks at kind of the foundational relational algebra and says, okay, how can I kind of massage this this query plan, canonicalize it, figure out whether there is or there isn't a reflection or multiple reflections that I can use to satisfy this query more efficiently. And so it doesn't, it's not necessarily a one-to-one between the virtual data set and a reflection. There could be many reflections associated with a virtual data set, but even those, those reflections could also accelerate queries on hundreds of other virtual data sets. You said there's a scheduled time or some sort of SLA mm-hmm. that where the reflections get updated with the most recent uh, pieces of data that have been added to the data sets that the virtual data sets are referring to, does that mean that if I load my reflection into my BI tool, it, it may not uh, represent the, the up to, most up-to-date version of the data? Yeah, that's correct. So like, like with any caching system, um, you're basically saying, you know, I'm okay with, you know, looking at data that is one hour old, right? That, that's kind yeah. of the, the trade-off that you're making here. Now, you know, for most companies today, it takes them months to create a new visualization. So for them, yeah. this is a, it's a, it's a no-brainer, right? Um, we do have some, some, uh, some users where that SLA that they've defined in our system is one minute. So we have, a, for example, a use case that involves IoT data, and um, and they're kind of it's a predictive maintenance use case where it really matters that it's very much up to date, and so they do these uh, uh, refreshes on a uh, on a minute by minute. Um, basis. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, people seem to kind of settle on the maybe one hour kind of time frame or something around that uh, that range is, is what they prefer. It, it seems like maybe you could also time the reflections to be up to date when the data data scientist sits down to do their uh, their daily or weekly analysis. I guess I don't know much about how yeah. data analysts work, so maybe they don't work that way. Maybe they do more ad hoc inspirational work. Yeah, you could certainly, you know, if somebody is, uh, you know, they come in every morning at 9 a.m. and that's when they do their work for an hour, you could certainly set it up so that, um, you know, you can kind of trigger it or even use an API call to, to trigger a refresh at the, the time that, that, uh, that you want. Um, there are also all sorts of uh, kind of sophisticated capabilities here around how these reflections are maintained. And so sometimes you may have a situation where you have different reflections that are that can be built off of each other rather than you know each of them being built from the source data. And so then we internally maintain this uh, kind of, uh, you can think of it as a graph, a dependency graph of reflections, and we'll automatically figure out what's the right order in which we should refresh these, uh, uh, these reflections uh, so that we're kind of minimizing the amount of load that we put on the, in the case of an operational database, on, on that operational database. Tell me a little bit about building a reflection as far as you can go without revealing the secret sauce. Sure. So the, the reflections are actually stored in a, uh, um, we use the Apache Parquet format and combination of that and, and some elements from, from Apache Arrow and then added some optimizations on that. So that's, that's basically the, the format on disk um, of each of these reflections. Um, and we actually allow the user, the, the, the administrator of the system or somebody who has a good knowledge of the data to go and tune these reflections. So they can say, you know what, um, this set of queries, I, I just got a phone call from, you know, this uh, business analyst in the marketing department saying that he's running some, uh, some queries and they're too slow. And so as an administrator of the system, I could say, you know what, let me add a new reflection that's optimized for that type of workload. And, the once I've defined that, and that may take me a minute or, or maybe a, maybe two minutes in the system, I can just, just a few clicks. Um, that marketing user will now have very very fast response time, and they won't have to change their uh, any of their kind of client application or their you know if they're using something like Tableau, they won't have to change the worksheet uh, or their dashboard. It's entirely transparent to the end user. So that allows the administrator of the system to uh, to be fine tuning these reflections, and that's important because. Um, while we have some kind of automated capabilities, we also have kind of a voting system where users can vote for things that they want to be faster. At the end of the day, there are things that we don't know. So one of our customers, for example, the CFO um, has their own set of reports that they uh, they look at every day. And it's just one person. So it's not something that's very frequent in the system. There's no way we could have known that that was important. Um, but because they are the CFO, they 
<laughs> they are naturally important. So we, we want to provide that kind of flexibility to users to be able to control uh, which reflections exist in the system and they can add and remove them as, as they want. So it's actually very easy. If I recall, the Apache Arrow project is for in-memory data sets interoperability. So it's like you should be able to share your data that is in Python, in memory in a Python, so you're doing something with Python, like a pandas data science stuff, and it's sitting in memory, you should be able to shift that data to Spark and do stuff in memory with Spark, or just have that data sitting in memory, and you can run Spark operations on it, you can also run Python operations on it, and Arrow is the format that allows for that interoperability. Is, that's, is, that, is that right? Am I accurately describing Arrow? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So Arrow is all okay. about having a uh, columnar in-memory kind of technology for for representing data in memory and processing it, and leveraging kind of the modern CPUs and GPUs. Uh, and it's also a standard, right? A way for different systems to uh, share the same type of memory structure. At Software Engineering Daily, we need to keep our metrics reliable. If a botnet started listening to all of our episodes and we had nothing to stop it, our statistics would be corrupted. We would have no way to know whether a listen came from a bot or a real user. And that's why we use Encapsula, to stop attackers and improve performance. When a listener makes a request to play an episode of Software Engineering Daily, Encapsula checks that request before it reaches our servers, and it filters the bot traffic preventing it from ever reaching us. Botnets and DDoS attacks are not just a threat to podcasts. They can impact your application too. Encapsula can protect API servers and microservices from responding to unwanted requests. To try Encapsula for yourself, go to encapsula.com slash 2017 podcasts and get a free enterprise trial of Encapsula. Encapsula's API gives you control over the security and performance of your application, and that's true whether you have a complex microservices architecture or a WordPress site, like Software Engineering Daily. Encapsula has a global network of over 30 data centers that optimize routing and cache your content. The same network of data centers are filtering your content for attackers, and they're operating as a CDN, and they're speeding up your application they're doing all of this for you, and you can try it today for free by going to Encapsula.com slash 2017podcasts, and you can get that free enterprise trial of Encapsula. That's Encapsula.com slash 2017podcasts to check it out. Thanks again, Encapsula. So, so if you've got, like, data in a MySQL database and an Elasticsearch cluster and three other data sources, and you want to get that from a physical data set uh, that is, you know, has been earmarked as a virtual data set that people like, and you want to pull it into a reflection, you maybe want to get all that data into Arrow, all in the, in the Arrow format, so that it's all interoperable, and then you get the Arrow format put into Parquet, so it's in an on-disk consistent format and then you put the on disk format into a reflection is that right yeah so everything in in uh, in dremio as soon as it leaves the disk or the source system it becomes arrow format so all of our internal execution is based on arrow and that means that as soon as we read records a batch of records from elasticsearch or from hdfs immediately that becomes a batch of of arrow in memory and as it's executing in the in our entire execution engine, it, it remains, it goes from one arrow buffer to another arrow buffer, you know, as it's going through kind of the different operators. Um, and then you can also take that, you know, the results of an execution um, and you could, uh, the, the goal really is to be able to use something like Python or, you know, and, um, you know, Pandas supports arrow as its high performance memory representation. So now uh, imagine being able to uh, take uh, the result of a join whether it's just a join of two tables in Hadoop or S3 or a join across different systems and be able to do that analysis in, in Pandas without having to deserialize and serialize data. So that's that's really the goal with, with Arrow. And it's something we, uh, you know, we at Dremio put out uh, open sourced about, I want to say a year ago. 
and has since become kind of the standard memory rep representation for Pandas and NVIDIA's GPU data frame and some of the GPU databases now use it as their in-memory representation as well. So it's quickly becoming that uh, what we had hoped, which was to create this industry standard way to represent data in memory for, for an, uh, analytical use cases. And so when those reflections get pulled out into the BI tool, so are are the reflections getting pulled out into Arrow and then yeah. being read by BI tools? Well, one of one of the things we've done um, is we've developed a very high performance kind of translator from Parquet to Arrow, and so yeah. when the the reflections are stored in Parquet because there are um, efficiencies in Parquet that we can leverage, especially with how we use Parquet to store the data in a very very highly compressed way. Uh, but once we want to read that data, immediately we read it into kind of the, the arrow format. And as more and more of these client applications, uh, such as Python and, and R, but, uh, but in the future also various kind of commercial BI tools, embrace arrow as their way of, of um, kind of ingesting and, and leveraging data. And some of them are actually working on that right now. Um, you'll have an extremely high performance way to move data um, into those systems as well without having to go through kind of the traditional uh, ODBC protocol. I see. I see. So so today maybe things are not as fast as they will eventually be because uh, just to refresh people, you've got, okay, so you, it, it, the end-to-end -end explanation. You've got a MySQL database, an Elasticsearch cluster, three other data sources. Everything's got different latency. All the data has different structures. You go into Dremio. You label some of those physical data sets as virtual data sets that like, oh, I'm going to want this join between my MySQL database and the data in Amazon S3 or RDS or something. Mm -hmm. And you get that join labeled as a virtual data set. On some scheduled basis, that virtual data set gets translated into a Dremio reflection, which is uh, a materialized view that sits on disk um, so that you can access it basically cache on disk so that you can access it faster so you don't have to do the entire join uh, on the fly you've just basically got it cached in on disk and then the it's cached on disk in parquet format which is a columnar format and people who want to go back and listen to the episode I did with Jacques to learn more about columnar data they can do that you know we went really into detail on the parquet and arrow stuff uh, and then, so it's it's sitting on disk in Parquet. When you want to access it um, uh, from a BI tool today, you need to trans. You might need to figure out how to translate. Well, or maybe there's some plugin. I think you said o ODBC. I don't know much about what that is. Uh, open da database something. Anyway, uh, but so so in order to to pull that from the Parquet file into your BI tool, there is some degree of latency or something because there's not an easy arrow translation layer to, maybe you could disambiguate that process what you were referring to yeah so so today if you're using a, a client application on your desktop whether that's let's say excel or if you're using something like tableau right um those tools typically use a um uh, an, an api called um kind of a local api called uh, odbc um, there's another one called JDBC for Java applications, and that's how they want to talk to databases. And so then you have kind of a, a, an ODBC driver for each database on that client machine, um, which means that in the case of Dremio, we can maintain everything in Arrow all the way to the client over the network, but then it does have to get translated from Arrow into kind of that ODBC API so that these BI, these kind of uh, traditional BI tools can, can use it. Um, that doesn't have to happen for things like... Uh, uh, data scientists who are using, let's say, Pandas, because Pandas now supports um, Arrow as a native uh, memory representation. Actually, do, it can actually do operations on that. And uh, Wes McKinney, who's the creator of of, um, of Pandas, is actually the one of the primary uh, contributors uh, on the Arrow project. And so, for some tools like uh, Python, for example, you don't need to go through that translation. While for other tools that are, you know, let's say window applications like um, you know Tableau, you you do need to go through that translation. Uh, over time, we expect that more and more of these client applications will simply embrace Arrow um, natively, and they'll 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 not have to go through that translation layer that they they all have to go through uh, today. 
But that's that's an ongoing thing, I think, for for depending on the use case, it may or may not matter so much. So oftentimes for BI tools, um, because the amounts of data that are uh, being shown in the tool uh, usually aren't very big, right? At the end of the day, it's it's painting dots that a human eye, in the case of you know, something like Tableau, the, the human eye needs to be able to see all these dots on that report. So, you know, it doesn't really help that there are a billion dots. You can't really visualize that. So most of the time, these data sets are much, much smaller uh, because what's happening on the back end is that Dremio is already getting the instructions from Tableau to aggregate the data by city and state and customer. And so we're already doing that aggregation and just sending back a, a much smaller amount of data. You know, what's interesting about this project to me is I think we, you and I first talked a couple years ago when we were talking about Drill, we did the show about Drill, and Dremio was just a splash page with uh, with very little information. And now you've got a full-fledged project, and it makes total sense to me. Um, it, it It's unlike uh, anything I, I know of. Uh, maybe there's something internally at Google where they use something like this, but it sounds like a pretty cool and differentiated project where you've got a moat in the sense that you've got this this uh, caching system that you've developed. I'm sure that'll get more sophisticated over time. Um, I'd love to know: Did you know what this that this was the product two years ago, or was there some finagling with the strategy? <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's. We kind of knew at a high level what we wanted to achieve. Um, I had come from uh, kind of the I, I was one of the early employees at MapR. I was I was the VP of product there. Spent five and a half years, and you know, what, one of the things I observed over the those those years, kind of of the emergence of big data, was that it was just way too hard. Right at the end of the day, you know, people wanted to leverage data, but they then had to go hire you know twenty data engineers and you know train everybody and it was very hard to to get value out of the data especially to enable non-technical users as well to get value out of the data and so when we looked at that and we said why is it so hard for companies to leverage their data that was kind of the the initial question we were trying to answer and as we started interviewing more and more of these these companies and especially kind of the larger kind of global 2000 the many of the and the brands you're, you're familiar with, um, it became clear that it was just so many different kind of point solutions and legacy technology that they had to deal with. And that if somebody could really develop a system that um, would abstract all of this away and provide performance without making the users have to think about it, that could really be a game changer in analytics. And that could finally enable companies to start uh, capitalizing on on the data that they actually already have in various places, and so that was that was the goal. You know, the technology has definitely de- definitely evolved over time. You know, um, you know, we had to build an entire engine uh, from the ground up for this purpose. We couldn't use any you know existing SQL engine or drill or any of those things. That none of those kind of met the the needs for the the performance and the, the types of things we're doing with reflections. So we built that, and we ended up building. Uh, Arrow as part of that and, and actually open sourcing that along the way. Um, now, when we launched the company, we also said, you know what, all of our, our executive team actually comes from, you know, companies like MapR and MongoDB and Hortonworks and has a ton of experience with, uh, with open source. And we think that's the right strategy in 2017. And so Dremio is itself an open source project now um, that many companies uh, are, are downloading um, every day and putting to use the Dremio open source project itself, meaning thing that pulls from parquet files basically, or what, what is the Dremio open source project? Yeah, actually everything we, everything we, we talked about today. So that's, that's all open source. You can go to, you can go to Dremio.com and, or, or a GitHub page and, and download the, the, the software and run it on a cluster, either your Hadoop cluster, or you could run it in the cloud or, and connect to your different data sources, and you know. Oh, I see. Okay, so so the the thing that is not open source is essentially the reflection builder. And so if you don't, if you if you don't, if you're not using the Dremio enterprise mm-hmm. product, the the business model, you're pulling from your virtual data sets 
and you're you have to schedule yourself when are these virtual data sets going to get materialized and when am I going to pull them into memory no actually the only thing that's not open source so the reflections and 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 the acceleration capabilities are all open source as well they're all part of the community edition the what's not in the community edition is um first of all kind of the enterprise security so the ability to control to connect to LDAP, for example, for user authentication, the ability to control uh, access to different data sets. Um, and then the second thing that's not available in the community edition is some of the connectors to things like uh, you know Teradata and IBM DB2. So some of these technologies that are much more enterprise oriented. Oh, okay. Yeah. Those connectors are, um, those are like between the reflection and the client side application, or is it between the on disk physical data set and uh, the reflection? Well, it's actually the, uh, so Dremio will connect as a system. You can go, the first thing you'll do is you go to our UI and you'll say um, add source and you'll connect to your different data sources. And that includes your Elasticsearch clusters, your Hadoop cluster, your MySQL database, and, and so forth. So you're connecting to your different data sources. And so if you're using the community edition, you can connect to you know something like 10 different data sources. And there are a couple, uh, just a few that are only in the enterprise di- uh, edition. So that's kind of the, the difference there. Uh, regardless of, of which edition you're using, you can users can log in, they can create new virtual data sets. You can, as an administrator, you can manage the, the reflections that are happening behind, that are being maintained behind the scenes and help with acceleration. So we, we think that any, certainly a startup could get started with community edition and use that in production at any scale, you know, up to a thousand servers without a problem. Um, and, and not have to pay anything. I guess, I guess I'm still not quite. I mean, I, I, I fully believe this business model makes sense. I just I'm having a little trouble understanding it. So where does the Teradata and the the DB2 connectors or whatever? So basically, sure. I mean, you 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 just you basically described a world in which, um, you know, there is a long tail of ways to access your data. And unfortunately, you want to be able to do joins between your Teradata or your DB2 or whatever databases were used mm-hmm. in the COBOL era. Um, maybe that's DB2. And you want to be able to do to to work with these data sets just like your RDS cluster and your MySQL. You want to use them like they're modern data sets. And in order to do that, you you should have some sort of connector that plugs them into Dremio. And I'm just having a little bit trouble understanding what that connector is because that's sure. part of the premium offering. Yeah, so... So maybe let's take a step back, right? Dremio has connectors. As part of our software, we ship connect connectors to different data sources, right? Data sources are, you know, the Teradata, the Oracle, the SQL Server, the Hadoop, S3, and so forth, right? So we have a, a collection of different um, connectors, and we're, we're constantly adding more and more of these connectors. And this is what allows our software <clears throat> to connect to different data sources, to push down queries into them, to be able to read data from them, and, and so forth. Um, and so for users of our, and then, and then when a BI tool, for example, like Tableau or a tool like, you know, uh, you know, Pandas in, in the Python world connects to Dremio, we look like a, a single relational database to that tool. So we're abstracting away all the different data sources, um, and making it all look like one relational database where you can join things together and so forth. Um, if you're using our community edition, you're able to connect to Elasticsearch and S3 and, and Hadoop and, Mongo and SQL Server and, and so forth. Um, but if you happen to have a, a Teradata cluster, you're not going to be able to connect to that because that's uh, that's only reserved to the Enterprise Edition. Okay, all right. I, th- I think I, I think I got it. And so, so the motivation for building Arrow or starting the open source Arrow project that's pretty interesting because you were uh, that that was basically a way of crowdsourcing the connectors between the uh the on disk representations of the those physical the physical data sets that, that you could label as virtual data sets that was a way of crowdsourcing how do we get those virtual those virtual data sets into our execution engine so that we can uh model it however we want and put it into our dremio reflections yeah arrow when we when we talk about crowdsourcing there is uh uh, it, it's a long game, right? To 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 create a world where everything in the industry 
uses one memory format. I mean, first of all, that's never going to ha- it's never going to happen entirely, um, but it's something that's going to take time, right? So, you know, over the last year, we've seen a variety of different technologies now embrace Arrow, and and that that's that's of course helpful for us as well, um, and just helpful in general for for the uh, for for the industry. Yeah, no, I, I didn't mean to phrase it like it's like a Machiavellian thing. It was just like, what's the you know, if we do these three things will that get the community going in a direction that really uh lifts our boat mm-hmm. um in in the way that we need because it's going to raise all boats but we've built a really big boat yeah uh, exactly that- <laughs> I, I, that's exactly that's exactly right right so our our goal was hey let's let's provide value i mean the only way you're going to get anything adopted by anybody else is if you provide yeah. value to them right so uh, you know the the fact that we provide arrow which is uh, you know, a, a great library for dealing with data in memory and, and solves a lot of problems that a bunch of people otherwise would have to solve themselves, right? And they don't want to if, if there's something open source they can just adopt, right? So we uh, we put that out there. Uh, why does that benefit Dremio? I think uh, it indirectly benefits Dremio because, you know, Arrow is, is the memory format that we chose as well, of course. Uh, and so by having other systems talk and, and use that same uh, format we have we can then have uh, over time better and better interoperability with with different systems since we're talking about open source now i think it's worth taking a step back and looking at the history of this because it's pretty it's a pretty crazy lineage i think i understand the lineage the dremel project originally came out of google and that's like dremel that's uh phonetically similar to dremio so i'm assuming dremel yeah. is the ancestor of dremio and Dremel was kind of this columnar, it's like a columnar, uh, it's a system for doing faster analytics. BigQuery is based off of Dremel. Mm-hmm. That's, that's Google's BigQuery service. It's very popular. And uh, I think Drill had something to do with Dremel. Was Drill, was Apache Drill, was that kind of the open source version of Dremel? Well, it's hard to say the open source version of, of something, right? Because, you know, mm-hmm. Google Google builds builds projects internally. They don't, they don't really open source them. Right, um, a white paper. Yeah, they they read a white paper. So, uh, drill until recently. Drill was a SQL engine. Uh, it is a SQL engine, primarily focused on kind of Hadoop, and there are a number of others like Hive and, and Impala and and Presto that kind of serve a similar purpose of of having you know being a SQL engine. Right, Dremio is a very different type of project, obviously, just from the fact that um, you know the the whole kind of acceleration of queries, being able to accelerate queries by orders of magnitude and, and having a way for users to kind of collaborate and, and curate data sets in the system. And then also being able to push down queries into all these different types of systems. So it's a, it's a very different uh, system. You're right that the name Dremio did, uh, well, we were looking for a, a short um, company name that had a, an available domain name and that, that was kind of hard to find. So, uh-huh. so that, we ended up with that, but, uh, uh, it, it's, it's the, I'd say the vision and kind of the, what we're doing is a lot broader than, than what these uh, kind of SQL engines were doing. It's catchy. I like the narwhal <laughs> and you know, I think it's, it's funny. You compare the, the, the Dremel strategy or the, the, basically the big table strategy where Google released these white papers and then the community would sort of like shamble slowly towards <laughs> the Google infrastructure and everybody's constantly 10 years behind what Google has because Google just releases these white papers. You compare that to today, the Kubernetes and TensorFlow strategies where they open source it and everybody immediately adopts what Google is doing and then Google gets to you know, kind of similar to the, the, the sort of Dremio slash uh, Apache Arrow thing, Google has built the biggest ship. So they get, you know, when the rising tide lifts all boats, they get the most value out of it. What do you think about that contrast between the white paper strategy and the open source strategy that Google, do you think this is a shift in Google strategy or do you think they're just, they're going to be selective with the white paper versus open sourcing strategy? I think it's definitely, definitely a, uh... A shift, and I think it started when they kind of started investing more in their cloud infrastructure. Right? They realized right. that you know if they want to, if they want to appeal to companies to to leverage Google Cloud. Right? They need something to to draw them there. You know, versus you know Amazon being, of course, the the first player in the market and the largest player, and and Microsoft being you know having kind of the owning the enterprise, if you will, right? So what is what is their strategy? And I think they realize that if they can open source some of these technologies, get developers to uh, to start using them, 
you know, if they're the best place to host that Kubernetes uh, environment or, you know, TensorFlow workloads, then uh, that gives them an advantage. So, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a smart move on, on their behalf. I think they also observed what happened with some of these white papers, right, where, you know, they, you know, going back kind of to the, let's say, the MapReduce days, right, they, you know, they read a white paper on MapReduce and then it was implemented, you know, years later in the open source community. Of course, when Google came and said, we want to provide a cloud service, um, they couldn't then offer their superior MapReduce service because it was a different API and everybody had already built apps on the open source oh, version. So, oh, 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 I didn't uh, realize that. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think that, you know, the probably lessons learned in terms of let's get people developing on our APIs uh, early on, right? Hilarious. Sure, 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 is, sure is a great world, world for developers these days. Yeah, it is. There's a lot of a lot of free stuff out there, and you know you can download things, and and that's also why you know even if you look at the world where we are in at Dremio, where we're actually closer to that you know business analyst and data scientist, where actually a lot of tools are proprietary, we still thought that the right strategy was to provide something open source because it encourages that kind of uh, you know bottom up adoption where people can they can go download it, they love that their ability to get started. They don't they don't have to talk to a salesperson. They you know, developers hate that. Uh, I hate that. <laughs> um, you, you, did you build a visualization tool, your own visualization tool? No, we built kind of a, from a visual standpoint, our UI looks like Google Docs for data sets. So, you know, people can create new virtual data sets. They can collaborate, share them with their colleagues and kind of build on top of that. And then there's a kind of a data set editor where they can, uh, they can curate the data, they can massage the data, but we, we don't, we don't provide that uh, kind of last mile visualization the way a BI tool would. So we very much prefer to partner with companies like you know, but, Looker and Tableau and, and Click and so forth. But that Google, that Google Docs style stuff, all that's open source? Yep, that's all open source. That seems that seems pretty unique. That seems pretty differentiated. No, Nobody does that, right? Like Looker and Periscope data and stuff, they don't do that stuff, right? No, that's, that's correct. So Looker very much focuses on the... Uh, kind of the analysis as opposed to getting the data ready, and so we actually partner very closely with Looker, and we actually share a we actually share a board, a board member with them. Oh, of course. Um, okay, so interesting. All right, that's that's uh, okay. Let's uh, then in that case, let's let's kind of I guess we're we're drawing to an end, so let's kind of close off with the con- contextual stuff. So how? I mean, what is the modern? What is the most modern data scientist doing with? Dremio. I mean, you you talk, we talked a little bit about the Periscope mm-hmm. data slash Looker set of tools. What are the tools that the most modern data scientist is using today, and what are they doing with them? Yeah, yeah. So another way to think about it is, uh, you know, there are companies whose goal it is to provide self service visualization or self service kind of data science, right? That these are companies like Looker or or Tableau, you know, or Microsoft Power BI, right? That that's what they do. Dremio's goal is to provide self-service for everything underneath that. So if in the past you needed to have, you know, a data warehouse and a bunch of ETL tools and cube building technologies and pre-aggregating data and, you know, extracting data and all that kind of stuff, we wanted to create self-service at the data layer. So for for that entire data platform. And so then you have an entire end-to-end stack that's self-service, both the visualization and that comes from Looker, you know, Tableau, Power BI, et cetera. And everything underneath that comes from, uh, from Dremio. Um, so the data scientist uh, today will use that, that term data scientist is a little bit, uh, it is very broad, right? It means different things to different <laughs> sure. people. So for some people, data scientist is somebody who writes SQL queries. For others, it's somebody who uses a visual interface like, you know, Tableau or Looker. And then for other people, it's more of a kind of a machine learning person who builds models and deploys models and that they may be using something like uh, Python or R for, for that kind of use case. And the, the Dremio business model are you looking at it are you modeling yourself after because i'm trying to think of an analog it's not really like the map R world that you come from because the the whole map R, mm-hmm. uh, the, the map R and cloud era and um whatever the, there's a there's a third one um also that i'm forgetting that horton works horton works right it was interesting because that model of company uh, it became sort of like a consultancy type of model but i think part of that was because this was so hard to do and everybody wanted hadoop everybody wanted the big data but nobody had any idea how to set it up and so you really needed this group of of consultants to come in and help you set up 
uh, and give you enterprise software that made things easier to use, we're kind of in a different world, and Dremio does not need to be anything like that. Or, or am I getting it wrong? Oh, you're you're 100% correct, right? So it was very refreshing to go from the Hadoop world where you know you sell somebody Hadoop, and now it takes them six months before they get any value out of it, and to a world where you know on the first day that somebody starts using the system, they're already solving kind of really hard business problems that they were having for a long time, right? So uh, the spark that you see when we demo the product to people and, and they see the, the the actual demo, they uh, you know, and they love it. That, that's really uh, refreshing. And you know, so we don't we don't sell professional services. There's no need for kind of consultants. Um, you know, we can help them on the first day to to install it and integrate with their systems. But that's that's really all all they need. Um, but when it comes to kind of the the open source and the business model, I would say of the three Hadoop vendors, we're most similar to Cloudera probably. In that, you know, we kind of take the community edition, which is kind of an open source Apache licensed uh, version, and then we have an enterprise edition, which has additional functionality that people pay for. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, Tomer, this has been a fantastic conversation. Really uh, technical, interesting product, but also very subtle business model. I love talking to you, Dremio guys. So you should do continue to do more shows. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, thanks uh, Thanks so much for, uh, for hosting me. Really okay. enjoyed the conversation. All right, wonderful. Simplify continuous delivery with GoCD, the on-premise, open-source, continuous delivery tool by ThoughtWorks. With GoCD, you can easily model complex deployment workflows using pipelines and visualize them end-to-end with the value stream map. You get complete visibility into and control over your company's deployments. At gocd.org slash sedaily, find out how to bring continuous delivery to your teams. Say goodbye to deployment panic and hello to consistent, predictable deliveries. Visit gocd.org slash sedaily to learn more about GoCD. Commercial support and enterprise add-ons, including disaster recovery, are available. Thanks to GoCD for being a continued sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Wow!